0: Hi, this is Ibi Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight... Ben Mezrich is the author of The Anti-Social Network, The GameStop Short Squeeze, and The Ragtag Group of Amateur Traders That Brought Wall Street to Its Knees. Ben is the New York Times bestselling author of The Accidental Billionaires, which was adapted by Aaron Sorkin into the David Fincher film The Social Network, and also Bringing Down the House, which was adapted into the number one box office hit film Twenty One. He also wrote many other best selling books. His books have sold over six million copies worldwide. Welcome, Ben. Thanks so much for coming on. Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the anti-social network.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about it.
0: Oh. I also love, by the way, that basically you infuse all of your stuff with your own parenting and being a father and you know, from your profiles about you you and trying to put eye drops in your son's eyes to in this book, talking about Roblox and Fortnite, which I have kids too. And we are like a Roblox family. I I like bought them all shares in the stint stock when it came out because I'm like, you guys are going to fund the rest of this. So anyway, I really appreciate that element of your
3: story. Yeah. My kids are are central to everything I do, just especially in the pandemic because they're in the same room most of the time. But yeah, now they're 11 and nine. It's pretty as you know, full time. So yeah, all of my books kind of have something to do with my kids, at least since they've been around. Yeah.
0: Well, it's nice to hear. I think not all, I mean, not to make this sound so gendered, but not all male authors do that, you know, not all women authors do either, but it's just very nice to see it from the dad's perspective. Well, thank you. (laughs) So can you tell listeners who might not be familiar with the Antisocial Network what it's about and how you stumbled on this particular story and decided to make it into a book sort of in real time as you did?
3: Sure. Yeah. The Antisocial Network is really about the whole GameStop drama that people remember back in January, you know, kind of at the height of the pandemic, suddenly this crazy stock, GameStop, which is the company that, you know, we all know, some of us know, it's a video game store that's usually in malls that, It doesn't really do very well as a company, but it's beloved by gamers and people like that. Anyways, for four days in January, the stock price just went insane. It went from a few dollars a share to $500 a share. It captured the news. It was basically all these people on Reddit, these random people sitting on their couches who decided to try and beat Wall Street by buying up shares of this stock that a Wall Street firm was shorting, meaning a Wall Street firm was betting the stock would go down and everyone gathered together and decided, we're going to make this stock go up. And it ended up being very revolutionary. In my mind, it really changed how Wall Street has to look at things from now on. And I got involved. I was sitting at home and I was watching this happen, just like everyone else. I was stuck at home during the pandemic and still am. And I've always been into penny stocks and sort of gambling. I've written about, you know, Vegas and Facebook and social networks. So it kind of fit what I do. I started getting emails and phone calls, and people were like, you gotta, you gotta write this story. And so I dove in and, and this happened so quick that I was writing it while it was happening. And here we are, you know, I don't know, six, seven months later and the book is out. So that's kind of nuts and abnormal, but that's that's how I got in. That's kind of the story.
0: That's so crazy. Yeah. I do know about shorting stocks. I I went to business school. I took a few things away. <laughs> so I do know what you mean in that regard. So when a story is happening in real time like this and you were at home, like how did you how did you go about covering it and knowing you were doing it in such a unique way like how like did you just start calling people how, like how do you just like jump in and do that
3: so my m- normal way I write a book is I really dive in i get to know the characters i spend time with them I'm on the phone with them I'm usually a novice learning something so I'm not a wall street trader I don't really know that much about banking or or what are you know like clearance or all of these things that go into wall street works so i dive in and and because of the pandemic it was not as in person it was zoom calls but really i reach out to everyone in the story and then i started watching you know youtube because the main character is this guy who calls himself roaring kitty who made hours and hours of these youtube streams so i watch every one of them and i get to know as much as i can getting sources for a story like this you know can be tricky You, you know a lot of people don't want to talk to me because i wrote the book that was the social network and they're all afraid of being Zuckerberg. <laughs> but some people do want to talk to me because they want to see themselves in a movie. And a lot of my books end up being movies. So it's a mixed bag of whether people will talk to me or not. But you know, I dove in and I started, you know, all day, all night for the first few weeks trying to get all of my sources and information. But then I just started writing because you know a lot of it was news stories and things that were happening live. There was this congressional hearing in the middle of it. Where all of the main characters met face to face for the first time over Zoom. So, to me, that was a very central scene in the book. So, I really just watched it as it was happening and was writing as it was happening. It's a crazy kind of moment. But, you know, when people read the book, they'll see. I think it feels very, you know, intense because it really was happening while I wrote it, which I think is unusual.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, you can tell. You know the edge of your seatness of it all. <laughs> I also read Bringing Down the House like forever ago, and well, I shouldn't say forever ago. I can't remember what year that came out, but I read it, and then I had I've had it forever. So
3: two thousand two. Yeah. Beat myself, but the movie was two thousand and I think seven. Yeah.
0: I didn't see the movie, but I did love the book. So way back in the day. So I've been sort of following your career ever since then. And now I think it's so neat. You're doing a Charles Dickens serialized book. What is uh, that about? Tell me about that.
3: Yeah. So the Boston Globe called me up. This was again in the height of the pandemic. And they said, you know, would you do a serialized novella for us? So basically put a chapter up a day. So this ran last spring and it ran for 20 days. I wrote a chapter a day and it was it was like a Da Vinci Code style thriller that takes place in Boston, but goes back to revolutionary times. And it really worked. We had a quarter million readers by the end. It was one of the most successful things in the globe. And so uh, a movie company and publishers came to me. And then I have developed it into a full size novel and it's going to be a series of novels. And the first one comes out end of February and it's going to be a movie. Spielberg bought it. Oh my So gosh. it's really cool. It's, it's called, well, the, the, in the globe, it was called the mechanic, but it's going to be called the midnight ride. And so it's, it's my first attempt at a fictional thriller of that sort, like Da Vinci Code style. I'm hoping people like it because I really loved writing it and I would love to write more of these. So that comes out in February. But yeah, that that's a fun one too. So I've had a busy, busy... I band mean, band
0: my history. gosh, you know, this is why the kids are on Fortnite and, you know,
3: my wife leaves, you know, to do something. It's like, I've had to come out and I feel bad because I know it's wrong, but it's like, you know, listen. They're learning a lot about how to hunt things down in Fortnite. <laughs> right.
0: You know, I actually think there's a lot of value to Minecraft. Honestly, I think yeah. that spatial relations and I mean that is tough. They're like building full on houses in. And I have that. to
3: say, as you know, with the antisocial network and and Bitcoin billionaires and the books that I write, I'm writing about this transformation of how we're moving online. We're moving digital, and I'm watching it with my kids. I don't know if you've noticed this, but my son would rather buy an outfit for his Fortnite character, than buy something real. So it's so true. Talk about NFTs and what is this? This is ridiculous or Dogecoin. I look at my kids and I'm like, to them, it makes perfect sense. The yes. online stuff is just as valuable as reality. And so it does segue into the way I, what I write about because I'm watching it happen in real time. They're living virtual lives now, and as much as it makes me nervous, I have to say this is. The future, to some extent.
0: Yeah, when people say like you know screens are bad, that's so. I mean, part of what and my older son is fourteen. Like a lot of his social life this summer was with his friends who don't live where we live. But he would be like playing video games with them, and I know video games are bad, blah blah blah. But like they were socializing all day. Like yeah. how is that so wrong? I mean, is that so different than me being on Instagram? Do you know what I mean? Or like you know this? I don't know. This is a screen. I I don't know. I mean,
3: yeah. I mean, it's tough to say, but I do think that we're in a new world now. And that's part of what I'm trying to chronicle with these books.
0: My mother was trying to bring my older daughter to go buy like some dress for the holidays or something. And she's like, well, I think I'm going to take her to Bloomingdale's. And I'm like, Bloomingdale's? <laughs> I'm like, she doesn't shop there. You know, she's right. never even, I don't think she stepped foot in Bloomingdale's. I was like, I can't believe Bloomingdale's is frankly even still in business at this point, <laughs> right? Like what on earth? Yeah. And she's like, no, it's fabulous. We'll have lots of options. And I'm like, mom, kids don't shop at Bloomingdale's. Like, Anyway,
3: <laughs> yeah. So. It's a different world. When my kids walked into Toys R Us for the first time when they used to be, they were so blown away because they all their shopping had been Amazon and things like that, but they did love it. So I do feel like there's there's something real valuable about those stores. I hope they continue to exist.
0: In the profile of you in the Washington Post, you said something like that you, you have had a bunch of doubles and one home run and that you're not a household name and you're not like Michael Lewis, who you sort of elevated to this, you know, What did I say? Did I not say Michael Lewis?
3: Yeah, Michael Lewis. My younger brother's favorite author is Michael Lewis. And every time I write a book, he'll be like, my brother will read it and say, you know, it's really good, but it's no Michael Lewis. <laughs> so it's like, listen, I love Michael Lewis. I think he's an amazing, amazing writer, but it's true. I've I've had two home runs, you know, the, the, the Social Network and the movie 21 was off of my book, Bringing Down the House, which was my most successful book, I think. But I've had a lot of, you know, singles and doubles and books that have, you know, made a lot of noise and stuff like that. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting world writing nonfiction because I think the difference between nonfiction and fiction is you can have a massive bestseller but your next book, if the topic isn't something everyone's interested in, it will be more niche. And it, it's not that your audience will carry with you from book to book necessarily. They're topic-based. As opposed to fiction, if you had a huge book, the next book would be huge as well because everyone's just reading you for the fiction. So it's a different type of writing. I think that's how I analyze it anyways. Yeah. I mean, I, I love what I do and I love the form of narrative nonfiction I write, which a lot of critics, you know, they, they don't love necessarily. So I definitely, there will be some some reviews out there that, that uh, take aim at the way I write because I write it like a thriller. I want it to be like a movie. I'm very cinematic and I see each story as if it's a movie in my head. And then I try and write it that way. So, you know, not all readers love the way I write, but I do have this core audience that seems to like it a lot.
0: No, I love that style. I think in scenes too, I think, you know, cause you're, you're really immersing yourself when you read a book, right? You're, you're taking yourself somewhere else. So the more visual it is, the more you can be fully, it's like virtual reality for right. not on screens. It's essentially what we're all doing. It's all the time. We just don't have the
3: <laughs> right, exactly. I, I agree. I love it. And, I, and I've always thought, you know, there's a, multiple ways to write a scene. So I interview everybody in the scene. I figure out what they said. I, I get all the you know, I go there. I take pictures. I know exactly what it is. And the question is, do I want to write it in an encyclopedic fashion where I basically write this is what happened and, and write quotes and things like that? Or do I want to visualize it and make it seem like it's actually happening? And so I choose the latter. And and so I really try and form the scene as if it really is a scene in a television show or a movie. And, and sometimes when people read it, they go, well, wait, what, what actually happened here? And I'm like, this is what happened. But it's from the point of view of all the different people who were there, and I try and find the true line through it. So it's, you know, it's my methodology goes back more to Michael Crichton meets Hunter S. Thompson than it does to, say, Michael Lewis, who would write the scene very differently than me. But I think there's space for, for different types of, of nonfiction out there, even if some reviewers of the New York Times don't think that. <laughs>
0: I mean, reviews, whatever, you know,
3: (laughs) I I get some great ones too. I mean, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag, right? I get the the ones sort of the younger reviewers seem to love my work more than the older reviewers. That's what I have found in the past.
0: It's just one person's opinion. You know, I think there are lots of more valuable metrics, which I feel like you're off the charts in. So, you know, obviously you don't have to worry, but (laughs) how did you get started in this career?
3: Yeah, so I wanted to be a writer since I was 12 years old. My parents had a rule. So I loved television and I was always watching television and my parents didn't want our like, their three boys to watch TV. So the rule was in our house, you had to read two books every week before you were allowed to watch TV. And at the end of the week, my dad would actually test us because he had read everything. And, and so we would sit down at the end of the week and talk about the books we had read and anything counted. So even in, you know, an anime or any anything counted as a book as long as it had writing in it. So by the age of 12, I knew this is what I wanted to do. So I basically started writing. And when I graduated from college, I moved into an apartment. My roommate was Scott Stossel. I do Scott who runs the Atlantic Monthly. Yeah, 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 yeah. The- Scott and I lived together in an apartment in Boston and just wrote. And we had crappy jobs and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I got very lucky and I sold my first book. I think I was 24 years old. And the book didn't, nobody read it. But I had six novels that came out year after year from like age 24 to 30. And then the Vegas thing happened and it was kind of life-changing where I met this group of kids who were going back and forth to Vegas and had won millions and millions of dollars playing blackjack So I hung out with them. I started going to Vegas with them. And that turned into my first successful book, which was Bringing Down the House. So basically, I wrote a book a year starting at age 24. And my sixth book was Bringing Down the House. And it kind of exploded. And that's how I became a nonfiction writer. So I never set out to be a journalist. I never set out to write nonfiction. I'd never written for newspapers. I'd never taken a journalism class. I wanted to write thrillers. But the first one that was successful happened to be true. So that's kind of how it developed into that style. And I've been writing thrillers ever since. And I I was fortunate also, I made a great connection to Hollywood. So that became a movie 21. And in the process, I, I became friends with a lot of producers and people like that. So from then on, when I had a story, I would write a proposal, send it and sell it in Hollywood first, and then write the book. And so for the past, I don't know, 15 books, I've sold the movies first and then written the book. So it's kind of a different process, I think, than a lot of writers out there.
0: Interesting. But then you also wrote the book about the X-File.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites.
3: I did. So that was back in my thriller days. I was out, almost moved into television, although I never really wanted to write TV at that time. And the X-Files came to me and said, would you write a thriller for like a a standalone book starring Mulder and Scully? So I wrote, I had never been out of the country at that point. So it, it takes place in Thailand. So I did it from a Fyodor's guidebook. And I wrote this thriller about Mulder and Scully called Skin, about a skin transplant gone bad. And so this professor at Columbia gets a transplant from a murder and then he starts murdering people and it turns out the skin comes from this monster in town anyways i wrote a book for the x-files yeah it's back in that uh, gosh 2000 or something like
0: that. sorry i know i'm like digging deep into your backlist here yeah. sorry you're having a backlist conversation I also a
3: tv movie back in called fatal error starring antonio sabato jr and robert wagner it was tbs's first movie And it was like the worst movie. I remember there's a scene in the movie where Antonio Sabato Jr. leans over a patient's chest and he goes, we've got a subdural hematoma. And my dad, who's a doctor, is like, you know that's in the head, right? So (laughs) the quality of the work at the time. So I was writing like pop thrillers. I didn't really know what I wanted to write. I just wanted to write. So my first six books were medical thrillers. And yeah, one was made into a TV movie uh, called Fatal Error, which I don't recommend anybody. No, see. I will not. It's still on Amazon, but it's it's there. I'm in it for like five minutes. So it's kind of funny. And then The X-Files. But then The Vegas Kids just kind of changed my life. And Bringing Down the House was the book and the movie was 21. And that that leads us you know, into the next phase of my career where I'm finding these true stories. Because what happened was that book was, was read by like every college kid. It was one right. of the crazy huge books among 20-somethings and younger. And so I started getting emails and phone calls from anybody who had a story. So like a lot of times from prison, but just tons and tons of stories were coming to me. And that's how the Facebook story happened. It was just two in the morning and I was sitting there and I got an email from a Harvard senior. And it was like, my best friend founded Facebook and no one's ever heard of him. And it wasn't Zuckerberg, it was the other guy. And so I, I went out to a bar and in at Eduardo. And if you've seen the movie, The Social Network, he looked kind of like Andrew Garfield, but not quite as good looking. Yeah,
0: like yeah, yeah. <laughs> the,
3: the, the reality version of the movie. And he, he proceeded to tell me this, this story about him and his best friend. They were kind of geeks, nerdy guys at Harvard. And Mark Zuckerberg, you know, wanted to get into these finals clubs, but couldn't get in. And Eduardo got into one because his family was wealthy. And Mark got angry and went out one night after a bad date and got drunk and proceeded to hack the computers at Harvard making a website where you could vote on who the hottest girl at Harvard was, which nearly got him kicked out of school, (laughs) caught the attention of the Winklevi twins, who you couldn't invent if you wanted to. Like, they're the perfect Hollywood characters, the giant Greek gods, you know, six foot five identical twin Olympic rowers. I mean, the fact (laughs) that they really exist is shocking. You know, and they are the bad guys in the story and the social network. And and so anyways, I, I thought this was an incredible story. And I wrote a proposal, a book proposal, And my book proposal leaked onto the internet, Gawker, which is back alive again, I hear. They printed my entire book proposal, which I'd kind of never seen before. And everything exploded when they did that. First of all, Aaron Sorkin saw it and was like, I want to write this as my next movie. And David Fincher saw my book proposal online and said, I want to direct this as my next movie, but only if we do it right now, because who knows if Facebook will be around in a year, (laughs) because this was, you know, before it became the monster it was. And I hadn't actually written the book yet. So basically, I sold the book, sold the movie, locked myself in a room, and I wrote that book over about 11 weeks. And Aaron sort of there. I was handing him the book. It's just crazy how that all happened. And that became The Social Network. So my career just was in a different place than where I'd started. I was this nonfiction guy writing thrillers and just you know fortunately fell into a couple of really big stories.
0: And you also do like middle grade and you also write with your wife. You do yeah. everything. This is my like crazy. I,
3: yeah, my <laughs> wife and I do a middle grade series called Charlie Numbers. The latest one was called Charlie Numbers and the Woolly Mammoth was the last one. There's been three so four so far. Bringing Down the Mouse, Charlie Numbers and the Woolly Mammoth, Charlie Numbers and the Man in the Moon. The three out out so far, a fourth one is coming. Yeah, we write write together on that. And it's aimed at like, you know, 12 year old, somewhere in the middle grade age range. But kids as young as like nine or 10, all the way up to like, I'd say 14. And I love writing it. It's fun to write for kids. It's fun going to schools and talking to kids. My kids are in that age range, so they can kind of read my books now. And my wife, Tanya, and I have a great writing relationship because she remembers every detail in life. Like, I have no memory of my grade school, high school. So the school in the book is kind of based on her grade school. And uh, writing women characters for me has always been difficult. You know, my books are very sort of the younger, you know, bringing down the house anyways, was basically, you know, from the point of view of the main character was a guy. And the social network was a little bit more broad. But again, it's nerdy guys. Right. So it's great to write with her because it's sort of a different feel when she, you know, was writing the, the, the girl characters and stuff like that. But yeah, it's it's been great. It's been, I, I, I want to try my hands at all sorts of things and we'll see what what takes off.
0: So after all these books, if there's one thing you could change about the publishing industry, what would it be?
3: Wow. I, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of things i change <laughs> about the publishing industry. I think it's interesting now that a lot of books are dominated by this political stuff. I get it. I get why people are interested in it. But do people really need 10 books about Donald Trump? Let's just, we did one, let's be done with it. It just seems to me like the landscape of book selling revolves around celebrities and politics, which I totally understand because we all love celebrities and we're all stuck in this political drama. But when you're trying to get a book out there that's a book, You are competing with, you know, I remember my first, the BEAs are this big book conference in New York at the Mm -hmm. Javis Center at the time. And every person with a new big book comes there and you do little talks and you have, you know, little groups of booksellers you're talking to. And it's really important. And I remember I was there, this was years ago, and I was there and I had my little group. And then there's this massive crowd of people walking by, all excited to see someone. (laughs) And it was Sting. And I love Sting. I, <laughs> but that captured to me the book industry. Every bookseller in the room and every publishing worker and everyone wanted to go see Sting. And all of the authors were over here with like three people, three people, three people. And to me, I understand that because I've consumed pop culture as well. But I wish there was like a separate world <laughs> where the authors are and then the celebrities are over here. because authors have to become celebrities to get people to read their books now, which I love being out there. And I love doing the social stuff. And I love doing publicity, which is really a big part of the fun. But the reality of the business is it's very uh, pushed towards how do we sell this book to the biggest market? And then you look at like the Today Show used to have authors on, right? When was the last time you saw an author on the Today Show? When was the author is like the fifth person down on the list after like the sports people and the actors and everything like that, which I totally get. And I totally understand. But if I were to change something about the publishing industry, the today show would have authors on every morning. <laughs> so That's that's <laughs> my, my, you know, my, it would be awesome. Wouldn't it? That I, would
0: I, be awesome. I, and authors. No, I, my whole thing is like, I feel like authors are rock stars and should be treated as such. And like, there should be like, you know, they should be
3: nerdy rock stars who never leave our houses. So it's kind of a different form of rock star.
0: Yeah. But but there's so much about authors. That's just, I don't know. I think as a group, it's so underrated, right? Introspective, verbal, sensitive, you know, have such amazing perspective on things like I don't know. I I could spend my I I do I spend like all day with yeah. authors, exactly. and, and you know,
3: it's really it's it's a it's an interesting you know time to be navigating as things turn digital. Maybe you know, and as everyone in the podcast world and stuff like that, authors do get a chance now to talk more to people who are interested in. But slowly, you know, the mainstream is definitely celebrity and political. And that's pretty much. Yes. Myself.
0: And that, oh, sorry, we've like totally gone over here, but, and that a lot of books depend on celebrity endor- endorsement to break out, which also I find problematic, you know, just a shame because there's so many other amazing books too. So it's
3: tricky. Exactly. It's tricky to find new voices and new books you want to read because the books that get front and center, you know, the rock is talking about,
0: it. <laughs> right. And that's, yes.
3: and that's just the way it works. So, you know, it's a, it's a different world. Yeah. That's true. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Got to get our books to the rock.
3: <laughs> that's what I try to do every day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Okay, so what's aside from the books you've already mentioned? What else can we look for from you?
3: Sure. So the antisocial network is out now. So that's what I'm running around talking about. I'm yeah, right. Writer, writer On the show Billions on Showtime. So if you like the show Billions, yes, uh, I'm involved so in, in season five of that. So I had a great time in the writers from season five. And then, you know, the, the Midnight Ride comes out in February. So those are kind of my main projects right now. I'm running around. I don't know what the next book after the Antisocial Network will be, but this will be a movie. We're actually going into production shortly. We have a script in, and they're looking at a short list of directors and actors now. So I believe you will see the Antisocial Network on the big screen within a year, which is very exciting. And then my I had a book called Seven Wonders, which I have sold to NBC. as a television show. So I'm, I'm slowly beginning to develop that as well. So I, you know... I'm around. (laughs) I'm doing a lot of stuff, but I hope people read the books and and check it out. And it's it's fun to talk about. So I love, love doing this stuff.
0: What advice would you have for aspiring authors?
3: Wow. I would say I have a lot of advice for aspiring authors. I think the key is obviously to read as much as you can, because you have to develop your voice and figure out what it is that you can write. I think that you should, personally, I think that you should keep in mind an audience. So you should try and write things that people want to read. So I do think it's a business to some extent. So if you like to write super literary and poetry, I think that's phenomenal, but it's difficult to have a career in that. So you should try and find ways, uh, if you want to do this for a living, to write that in a commercial fashion, I think, to some extent. I still believe in the traditional route of of sending out query letters and getting agents and and, and selling your books that way rather than the self-publishing route, because I feel like there's just a free-for-all there and it's very hard to break out And the reality. But, and then the other thing is you have to write a great first book. And so how to do that? Outlines, (laughs) they're hateful and everyone hates them and, and I hate them, but the outline to me has been the key to my career before I sit down to write a book, I write an outline that's so specific that I know the page numbers of every chapter from beginning to end of each chapter. And I never miss by a page. Um, so my outlines are ridiculous. And I have two outlines. I usually write a full outline and then a line by line outline with each chapter is just one sentence, because I feel like you can sum up a chapter in a sentence. And at that one, I write the page number at the beginning and end of each chapter. So I'm just telling you this to tell you how crazy I am about outlines. And as much as I hate them and I hated learning about them in school, I have found the outline is the key to a book for me. And that's why you'll, when you read my books, they're constructed on a very strict, almost oh. screenplay outline with three acts and, you know, where something's going to happen in each book and you can analyze it that way. So yeah. that's Do you yeah.
0: ever share your outlines? Like, do you post them anywhere?
3: No, so, interestingly enough, because I work with Hollywood a lot, I have to often send the more rigorous outline to the producers, because I usually have a screenwriter writing the screenplay as I'm writing the book. So I can give them the outline so they can get started even before they see the book. So that's probably why I developed it this way, is I use them as pitching tools. One day, if I ever taught a course, I would probably bring in the outlines and you you could see the developments of the book. So how it starts from the synopsis, which is like 14 pages long, to a a brief outline that I do on my phone to a full outline, then back to a single sentence outline, and then start writing. My goal is when I start writing, I've, everything is done. The, the, the work is done. The, the research is done. And I've compiled thousands of pages of research. The outline is done. And so I can just sit and write so that it only takes eight weeks. Huh. And that's how I can write a book so quickly, is basically all of the hard work is done before I start writing. So the writing just booms out over, you know, a couple months with kids oh. flying by and like <laughs> playing and my wife yelling at me and like, it's a crazy process, but it's quicker that way. So I highly recommend the outline as hateful as it can be.
0: I love it. That's very cool. Amazing. Well, when you start teaching your masterclass, let me know. I feel like you need to sign up for that right away.
3: <laughs> I think I could at least give you the idea in a masterclass of how I do it, but then you know, if you want to be crazy enough to attempt this, you have to be a little crazy because it's it's nuts. But.
0: All right. Well, when it goes live, you have to email me or something. Okay. <laughs> I'll take it. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm sorry. I feel like I somehow ignored your current book, but <laughs> this is also great. I hope people are reading the Anti-Social Network. And I'm sorry. I was just, I am so in admiration of your whole backlist, oh, I, I just had to go there. So I'm, I apologize if I've ignored the book today. It's a little bit. <laughs>
3: That's all right. Listen, it's about the GameStop drama. And if you were hearing the word GameStop and wondering what the heck was going on, pick up the Antisocial Network and every high school kid knows the story. <laughs> I'll tell you that. But it's a, it's a fun, wild one. It involves really crazy characters, dude in his basement in Brockton, Mass, who kind of launched this revolution and made $50 million. And meanwhile, a hedge fund lost billions. And it's, it's one of those types of stories. So it's a fun one. So hopefully people will check it out.
0: Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for all your time.
3: Oh, anytime. I love it. Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.